Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a very special guest by the name of Ben Nemton, who you may have heard of because he's the number one New York Times bestseller of an incredible book called What Do You Want to Do Before You Die? Ben is also the star of the MTV show The Buried Life and an internationally renowned keynote speaker. As the co-founder of the Buried Life movement, Ben's message of radical possibility has been featured in major media, including the Today Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, CNN, Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC News, and so much more. He's pretty much been on like every major platform that you can think of. Oprah Winfrey called Ben's life, life's work truly inspiring. And this actually came out of a dark place. So in a pit of depression, Ben and his three friends, his three best friends, decided to create the world's greatest bucket list to make them feel alive, to really help pull them out of that pit. So they bought a rickety old bus and crisscrossed across North America, achieving what would be seen as the unthinkable. And most importantly, every single time that they would accomplish one of their goals, one of their dreams, one of the things that was on the bucket list, they would then in turn help a complete stranger cross something off their bucket list from playing basketball to with President Obama to streaking across the soccer field. Uh, from raising over $400,000 for a charity to placing a record-breaking $250,000 bet on roulette, Ben's bucket list quest has inspired millions to chase their dreams. And today, we are going to talk about so much more than a bucket list. I just want to make that abundantly clear. Like, while you might have a bucket list, this is about so much more. This is about our relationship to death. This is about our relationship to accomplishing and doing things in our life. This is about gaining some positive momentum in our life and and getting ourselves unstuck in the areas where we feel like we aren't making any real progress. Ben has an incredible story. He's got some incredible messages. And to be honest with you, it's really impressive to hear some of the things that he's done. Um, that's not that's not just like the the reason to tune in, but I think one of the lessons that I really got away from got away from this actual podcast is a is a quote that he said somewhere about halfway through. He said, "Today is the youngest you'll ever be." And I feel like that kind of summarizes a bit of what we dive into. So make sure you stay tuned to the end because Ben and I actually have a, a, a bit of a conversation around mental health and mental performance and touch on that. I'll probably have him back on the show to do a, a much deeper dive into that topic. But for all of you out there listening today, no matter what it is that you're trying to work on in your life, whether you're trying to start a new business, whether you are looking at you know building your dream vacation, whether you have your own bucket list that you are trying to check off, this podcast is absolutely chock full with wisdom and insight on how to achieve your dreams. And so I hope that you stay tuned. Uh, quick reminder, please don't forget to Man It Forward. If you enjoy this episode, Man It Forward helps us get uh, you know into the ears and onto the phones of other people. Uh, leave us a review and, and rating on iTunes goes a long way. We have 
almost 100. I would love to get to 100. So please, 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 uh, if you love this podcast, if you tune in on a regular basis, please leave us a review. Uh, and uh, last but not least, don't forget to join our community on Facebook. It's called the Man Talks Community. We've got some great conversations in there for all the guys that are tuning in about fatherhood and fitness. Uh, and we've got over 3,000 men in that community from around the globe. So without any further delay, I would love to welcome Ben Nempton. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, man. I'm excited to have another Canadian on here. It's very, it's not it's not super rare, but it's a little bit rare to have the Canadians representing. Right? Yeah. We're just going to talk about hockey and igloos and, <laughs> and strong beer. <laughs> yeah. Beer, beards and uh, beards and hockey. And what else? What else is like, oh, plaid and some maple syrup. Yeah. And maybe we'll finish with some poutine. Oh, actually, that sounds really good now. I want some poutine. <laughs> All right, man. So I always start off with the same question because it always calls forward some incredible, incredible stories. And so uh, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So when I was graduating high school, I grew up in Victoria, BC, the West Coast of Canada. Everything was really good for me at that point in my life. Like I was, in fact, I was extremely excited because I just graduated. I had um, an academic scholarship to you know, one of the better universities in Canada. But the real reason I was really excited is because I just made the national rugby team. And this was like my biggest dream because I grew up in a sort of the Mecca of rugby in Canada. And, and as you know, like rugby is like the, the third biggest sport in Canada behind hockey and, and hockey. So it's like, it was kind of like a big thing for me to actually make this team. And, but I also put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed. So I, um, as we were leading up to the World Cup, which was in France, I started thinking about the games and I played fly half, which is, you know, there's a lot of pressure on that position. It's sort of like the quarterback and the field goal, field goal kicker and one. And I started thinking about the kicks and I thought, you know, like, I don't want to mess up a kick. Like, I don't want to miss an easy kick on the international stage. I don't want to blow it for the team. And this caused me to stop sleeping. So I wasn't able to sleep. And essentially I, I slid into a dark depression and it got to the point where I couldn't go to school. I couldn't go to practice. So I got dropped from the rugby team. I dropped out of school. I was essentially a shut-in in my parents' house. And I never experienced anything like this before. I mean, this was something that was a debilitating, crippling depression. And I'm the type of person that, you know, usually is surrounded by a bunch of friends and very positive, outgoing. And all of a sudden, I was just, just on my back from this. And... I didn't understand why it was happening and, and it essentially, you know, cut forward about six months where I, now I was out of school, not hanging out with friends, not on the rugby team. And my friends came and they kind of pulled me out of the house and, and they essentially took me to a new town. They took me to Banff, uh, Alberta for the summer because we were, they were sort of going there to work uh, in the summer. And so I went with them kind of reluctantly and, um, slowly but surely started kind of feeling a little more self-worth and sort of feeling back to myself. I mean, I got a job. I, uh, I started meeting young people that were inspiring. They had traveled around the world or they had, you know, started their own businesses. I never met young people like this before. And so, you know, I kind of came back from that trip and I was starting to feel a little bit back to myself. And, and I remember making a, a, a small decision that at that point I, I thought was pretty insignificant, but ultimately would completely change the rest of my life. And, and that was the decision to try and surround myself with people that inspired me. 
Um, because in high school, you sort of had this sample size of friends that you could hang out with. But when, you know, as I realized when I moved away, like there's, there's so many different types of people out there and I could choose the type of people I hung out with. Um, and I only wanted to hang out with people that brought me up or inspired me in some way. You know, that decision, essentially I came back and I, I surveyed my friends and there was one kid that I knew from around the block that I grew up with. I didn't know too much about him other than he was a filmmaker. Um, and he had taken my sister to prom, ironically. So I was, I was sort of conflicted about whether to reach out to him or not, but I did. And I said, Johnny, let's, his name was Johnny. I said, Johnny, let's make a, let's make a movie or something. Cause I'd seen that he had made some movies online and long story short, we gathered two other friends. We started talking about this movie and we didn't know what it was going to be about. We just knew that we had all these things that we wanted to do and we weren't doing them. And ultimately this kind of led to this adventure that we thought was going to be a two week road trip. Um, which ended up lasting, well, I mean, it kind of still still going, of us going after our biggest dreams and then helping other people do the things that they wanted to do. That's amazing, man. That's quite the story, quite the journey to to go on. I, I love the part of uh, the fact that, you know, this guy took your sister's sister to prom and you're like, I don't know if I should reach out to him. I, I'd be totally <laughs> the same, totally the same way. I'd be like, I don't know, like this guy took my sister to prom. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's incredible, man. So, so tell me a little bit more about this. Maybe we'll, we'll dive into what do you want to do before you die, but tell me a little bit more about the buried life because, you know, I, I read the poem and I kind of got a little bit of the backstory, but I would love to hear from you how this idea and concept sort of came into, into existence a little bit more. Once I gathered sort of with Johnny and, and my other two friends, Duncan and, and, and Dave, and Duncan was Johnny's older brother, you know, and, and, it's important to note, I think, that all four of us were in this low. We all were going through some sort of personal struggle, and we were all looking for meaning. And that was the only thing that we had in common because we weren't best friends, you know, before this. But we all had this, you know, thing that we were going through, and we were looking for meaning. And so serendipitously, we came together and we started talking about this documentary. But as I mentioned, we didn't know what it was going to be about. Now, ironically, so Johnny was at McGill University at this time in Montreal, and he was in English 102 class. And we were talking about this film on Skype and trying to figure out what to make it or what it would be. And he got assigned this poem called The Buried Life. It was a signed reading. So he read it and he brought it back to us. He said, guys, read this poem, read these four lines, um, because this poet is articulating this feeling that we can't articulate, which is that we have all these things that we want to do, but we're not doing them because they're buried. And they get buried by school, by work, by whatever, the day to day. And we have these moments of inspiration when we see the light or we get fired up and ultimately that gets buried. And he thought, you know, if this guy is in his, was in his 50s, you know, in 1852, so 150 years ago, he was feeling like this, this poet. Um, we're probably not the first people to ever, you know, feel like this. This is maybe a universal feeling. So let's take this name, The Buried Life. And at that point, we didn't know what the film was going to be about, but we thought, okay, let's take the name The Buried Life. And we thought, how can we unbury ourselves? And that's when we came up with this question, what do you want to do before you die? Because for us, the thought of death was the only thing that shook us into the present moment to actually prioritize what was important. From there, we decided to make basically the most epic bucket list of all time. We just And, and this was different than any other list I had ever written because we pretended that we could do anything. We just pretended that it, you know, if anything was possible, what would you do? Well, we would, we would go to space. We would make our own TV show. We would write a New York Times bestseller. We would pay off our parents' mortgage, cover a Rolling Stone, grow a mustache. You know, we just sort of wrote 
this list that had no boundaries. And that was the rule when we wrote it. And never expecting to do any of them, but we thought, let's just write this list. And then we thought, you know, every time we cross something off, let's help someone we meet along the way do something that they want to do. So we'll ask strangers on the road, you know, what do you want to do before you die? And if we can help them, then we would. And that'll be sort of fair payback for, you know, people helping us accomplish our dreams. And, and we just committed to it. We committed to two weeks on the road, you know, at the end of summer before we went back to, to university. And um, we said we were going to walk, bike or drive, you know, whatever it takes. We're going to go after this list and try and help other people. And we sort of worked the summer so that we could buy a camera on eBay. And we boarded a 1977 Dodge coach from an RV. And yeah, I would cold call companies pretending we had a production company saying we were making this documentary. And, you know, a juice company uh, named Happy Planet in Vancouver paid for our gas. And that was kind of sort of all we needed, right? We just sort of, you know, got granola bars sponsored and Red Bull gave us some Red Bulls and it's just kind of hit the road. And, you know, this, this two week road trip was it, what was crazy about it was as soon as we left, this sort of mix of like luck and magic started to happen where people started hearing about our list and seeing our list online and reaching out to us and be like, Hey, I saw number nine is ride a bull. Like my uncle owns a bull ranch. I can help you. Or I, you know, I saw on the list is number 38, make a toast to strangers wedding. Sorry, make a toast at a stranger's wedding. My friend's getting married. I'm the best man. I can help you. And, and, and the flip side just showered with all these emails of people saying, Hey, my dream is this. Can you help me? My dream is this. Can you help me? And we were really kind of taken aback by it because we didn't think anyone would care. We didn't really tell anyone that we were doing this. It was just, we were just kind of doing it for fun. And, you know, that, that two week trip uh, eventually just continued, right? We went back to school the, the next year and then the next summer we did a bigger tour and, and we just continued to cross off list items that we really didn't think were possible. And just kept doing it and ultimately led us to things like, you know, crossing off number 53, make a TV show, which brought us down to LA and, you know, write a New York Times bestselling book. And, you know, these things that really we had no business crossing off, but somehow they were, they were happening and, um, and ultimately helping a bunch of people accomplish their biggest goals, which, you know, for us ended up being the most meaningful part of, of this whole journey. I love it, man. I, I love it. I think that's, you know, it's it's not only inspiring, but I think it really does sort of pinpoint and identify some of the challenges that so many people feel in in living a meaningful life. And, you know, a lot of people who look at mental health and look at depression and, and you know, heightened levels of anxieties and stuff like that, what, what they really identify is that in a lot of ways, you know, being depressed or feeling like our life is meaningless comes from this space of not doing the things that we know would fulfill us and not doing the things that we ultimately want to be doing, but also being sort of attached to, you know, past circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you've done a good amount of work now in this, in this space and having spoken at some of these, you know, I, I've seen that you've spoken at some major companies like Microsoft and whatnot, and, and really started to share this message. And I'm curious as to what you have learned along the way about how important it is for us to not only share our gifts, but to get out in the world and do these types of things that we really want to do for our mental health. How important is it actually? So I, I believe it is extremely, extremely important. And, and, and not just for ourselves, but for other people. Because I believe, and this is something that I've come to realize recently, 
is that by doing what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love, right? We've, we've all sort of seen that when you really go out there and, or you see someone else that's really going for it and following their purpose, you get fired up. And so that ripple effect, you'll, you'll never know, but it, it really does have, have an impact on, on other people. And you're helping other people by doing what you love, which is so cool. Like you can actually, it's a win-win, right? And then for your, for your own mental health and, and, and well-being, the, the reason why, and I think specifically a list is important is because what you're doing is you're identifying, you're taking the time and slowing down enough to identify the things that are really important to you. The things that you know are going to bring you joy and purpose or fulfillment. That at the end of the day is what a list is. And the list acts as a device so that you don't forget about those things um, because you will forget about them. They will get buried. That's just the nature of life. And if those things get buried, you stop feeling happy, right? And, and, and this is the short answer. You start, f- stop feeling this sense of fulfillment and purpose. And also, I think what it, what it also it does is it's, it's really good training for you as you continue to grow to start to sub- unconsciously prioritize the things that are important to you. So w- what I've started to learn is that like these, this list that I had, which I would continually refer to, to kind of guide me in doing the things that I knew were important to me. As I continued to do that and opportunities came up or things started to happen, my compass just started to go that direction. And I would try and follow those things that I knew were important to me. And I would make sure that I I would get them done. And the other thing that I would say is that since that I've had that, you know, that big down when I was in sort of first year university. I've had a few other downs, you know, just recently, I would say like a year plus ago, I, I hit a, another down and I, I stepped back and it was actually my girlfriend that really kind of brought me to sort of understand this is that like, I wasn't liking the work that I was doing. You know, I was really bogged down with a lot of, you know, I was, I was working in production and we just had a production company and I was helping build the business and I didn't love the business side of what we were doing. I wasn't being creative. And I really had to like change what I was doing and think about like, what is this thing that's going to, going to make me happy? And, uh, and ultimately that kind of shifted my direction into more of like speaking and talking about the things that, uh, I, I really believe in and like speaking about mental health and, you know, understanding sort of more about like what makes me happy. And so, yeah, I think that like, whether it's like a big purpose like that, or it's a list where it's a list of small things, you know, that, that you know, that you want to do. Both of those things for me have really attributed to just my mental well-being. Yeah. Awesome. I, I think it's, it's so paramount because I think that we talk about, you know, in sort of the personal development world and self-help world. And, and even in just a mainstream culture, you see people talking about bucket lists and vision boards and all that kind of stuff. But it, in a lot of ways, it is like this surface level thing. Like I, I know so many people that have created bucket lists and it's just like this list, you know, I mean, it becomes like this other to-do list that's even more important to us. It's even deeper within our souls that we want to go and, and fulfill on these. And it sits there and, and people don't accomplish them. And it's, and it's, it's, it's crushing in a lot of ways because when we don't accomplish the things that we want to ultimately accomplish, it makes us feel like, you know, our, our life is missing some inherent value. And so 
I, I think that there is something really profound about what you're saying because it's it's more than the list. It's more than checking the box off. You know, like um, I always say that we we set goals to hit emotional targets, and so I think that this concept of what you're talking about of what do you want to do before you die is really like what emotional targets are you really aiming at? How do you want to feel when you're doing some of these things? Because it's not just about checking the box off of the list. And so I'm curious as to how do you, or how have you seen people like really accomplish some of these things in a, in a meaningful way? Like where should they start if they've created a bucket list in the past and maybe have an action, like a single thing on it? Like where, where can people tangibly start? So I'm a, big believer in accountability and also small steps because I feel as though the hardest um, part of going after a, a, a big goal, you know, or any goal is that initial inertia to get going because your mind usually stops you, you know, fear usually stops you. You don't have the whole roadmap, you know, charted. So that usually stops you. Um, you have self doubt, you know, so, but I think that the easiest thing to do to start, if you've already written it down, that's great. Cause I feel like that's the first step. If you haven't, I think that's really important because what you're doing is you're taking your idea and you're making it real. So you're effectively, you know, breathing life into your dreams. You're, you're creating a foundation to begin with and you're creating something that's, that's actually tangible. So you're, you're taking your dream and you're turning it into a project. The second, which is also, I think, an easy thing to do, but also uh, people are sometimes afraid to do it, is to share your list, share your dreams or share your goals. Now, that's just simply because if you don't share your list, no one can help you. And you would be so surprised how uh, people will show up in unexpected ways to help you if you share what you really want to do in a passionate, authentic way. And, and not, you know, and it's definitely about sharing it in a way that is just broad, you know, because you never know who will, who will help you, but also target it. You know, you want to think about who could help you. And, and now those are the people that you want to share it with. You know, if you want to write a book, find someone that's written a book or find someone that might have a, a relative or a friend that's written a book and just see if you can reach out and, and, and talk with them and, you know, start to, you know, either, ask their advice, see if they'll become a mentor, see if you can add value to them in some way so that you can sort of build this sort of reciprocal relationship. But a lot of people don't share their list because they're afraid of failure or they're afraid of what other people think, or they're afraid that if they, if they share their list and people, and they fail, you know, people look, look poorly upon them or there'd be a hit to their reputation. But um, I think it's a much larger failure to, you know, not take the first step or to wait for the perfect time and never do it. I think it's much larger failure than the, you know, any type of hit to your reputation you might feel when you fail. And I, I truly believe that failure is an amazing thing because it sort of forces a pivot that you need to succeed. And also you learn so much about yourself. The only way you learn about yourself and grow is, is through failure. So I think that sharing your, your list is a, is a really important, powerful. Yeah. It's step. like getting, getting skin in the game, you know, sort of, verbalizing and and committing to people who know you that you're going to go after these things. Yeah. And that accountability is like shockingly powerful. Like I shared my for the first time uh you know in a long time I shared my new year's resolutions this year um on Instagram and I think about that all the time and it drives me. It's it's wild how much that actually has an effect on you and that's a good thing, right? Like that keeps you going. Um, and I just feel like any type of accountability 
you know, writing it down is a small step in accountability. Sharing it is a larger step in accountability. You, you want that, you know, being in a community that supports you or having, you know, co-founders or friends that are doing the same thing. You know, that's what, you know, we had, which was really in hindsight, very, very, uh, I don't think we, uh, we wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done this on my own. You know, I would, I, the, the buried life only existed because there was four of us. Right. So I think, you know, that accountability is, is, is super important. Yeah, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that's okay, man. That was that was a great addition, and you know, I think one of the things that uh, that you mentioned before that I just want to sort of circle back on is this idea of you know, and the the book that you guys wrote is called "What Do You Want to Do Before You Die," and I think it's it it is so interesting because especially for for men, death is this really interesting piece like if you looked at if you look in like the spiritual like energetic realm the the feminine is life and the masculine is associated with death and so a lot of men have this very interesting relationship with death like if you look at how many guys are trying to build a legacy you know and and Mm -hmm. build something that will outlive them it's where it's like we're trying to cheat death or like these crazy I think about my early 20s where I like raced and stunted motorcycles. You know, it was like I was always just on this edge of trying to cheat death, of trying to be like, you know, giving it the middle finger, being like, haha, like I got you, you know, like I'm, I am, I am cheating you. I'm evading you in some way. And so I'm curious as to, you know, how can we, or, or why is it important to activate this part of ourselves where, you know, we get in tune with the things that we want to do before we die? Like, why is death so important for us? I think that it is, uh, it is something that we don't really internalize. You know, time is something that is, is you know, for most, mostly for me, it's intangible. You know, it's, uh, I, I think that there's a great quote that I, is one of my favorite quote, quotes and it's uh today is the youngest you'll ever be and every time i read that i remi- i get reminded that how true that is and i think that it's interesting when you talk with people on their deathbed you know you talk with nurses that are around uh people that are on in their last days or they are you know in hospice care or elderly um elderly care and what they've learned from from them is that the things that were really the most important uh, are, are, and the thing that they, they most regretted was working too hard and much and not spending time with the people that they loved. And those are just two very simple, simple things that we simply sometimes forget about. I think anytime we can remind ourselves that we are not immortal, that our time is limited, you know, I think that it's a scary thought for a lot of people, but if you really start to understand and digest that, it's kind of a, a liberating, inspiring thing because it helps you really, you know, prioritize those things that you that you want more than anything. And so for us, we thought, like, how can we remind ourselves about that every day? And that's why we made thought of this question, because we thought, okay, if we can ask ourselves this, you know... It, all the time, then we'll continue to like course correct, course correct, and, and continue to go after the things that we knew were the most uh, meaningful. And also, we can learn from other people because we wanted to ask other people this question and try and gain some wisdom from them and understand why or how they did the things that they wanted to do before they died. Or if they did it, what did they regret so that we didn't have to, you know, continue to go down a path where we weren't 
you know, we didn't really ultimately want to be going down just because it sort of is the way that we were headed. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great because it kind of puts it, it kind of puts time into a very different perspective for us. You know, like time sort of seems like this ubiquitous thing that we it's not tangible. We can't really see it, touch it like it's just. It's just always there, ever present, sort of going by. And so when we look at our sort of impending demise, I guess, without sounding too dark and ominous, um, it, yeah. it really does allow us to to be reminded of the fact that there is an end to this and and to really start focusing in on honing on the things that matter the most to us. I just I, I wanted to take a second here because I think that this is so cool. Like you guys said this on the, on the website and uh, it's a piece from the actual poem uh, called The Buried Life. And it says, but often in the world's most crowded streets, but often in the din of strife, there arises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life, a thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course, a longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart, which beats so wild, so deep in us to know whence our lives come and where they go. And I just, I love that. I love that little section, man. Why, why did you choose that section? Like what kind of st stands out for you about that part of the, that part of the poem? So I love that. I mean, I mean, one of the things that it's, it's talking about is that you at some point will get triggered by something. Something will happen to you where you will, you will see something or you'll have an experience or, and you'll get triggered by something and you will feel that burning desire or that passion or that inspiration. And once that happens, it may dim, but it never goes away. And I think that that is such a, like an inspiring thought. And I know for me what that was. And specifically, it was a friend of mine that, again, I didn't know him too well, but he went to my high school and he started a clothing line out of high school and just took out a loan and started this really cool clothing line. And he had no experience in fashion, right? And it was just about the time that I was coming back from my summer in the new town where I was starting to feel better. And he, I was like shocked and so inspired by him, by this guy that just started this clothing line out of nowhere. And I just like wanted to get involved. Like I, I was, I was pulled towards him to sort of be like, Hey, can I help you with anything? you know, can I get involved with what you're doing? And I got involved. I ended up getting, helping him get on this big uh, fashion blog. And I was just like, I couldn't believe how easy it was for me to help him. And, and, and I couldn't, you know, I was just like, the whole thing really triggered me to think, wow, if he did that, I wonder what I could do. I, I think that like, for us, the buried life, like, it's all about triggering people to it's never, it was never about like, telling people how to live their life and which is why we led with a question it's all about trying to trigger people in different ways to really feel that feeling of like oh look at what these guys are doing i wonder what i could do you know it's sort of like when you miss a party and you have fomo for missing a party you know we want to create that same experience but for life you know that we're just out there doing it and hopefully it would resonate with people so that they could see that we're no different than them and they could do it too. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what I got from, from that passage was, was being triggered by something that just does not die. Awesome. Awesome. I really like that. And, and it kind of like comes back to, I think the one line says like in, in tracking our true original course. And it's just like, that's the part that maybe is sort of 
always there, always has been there, always will be there that you're that you're really talking about. I think the other thing that really stood out to me, Ben, is this this idea of being of service to other people. Like it seems to be a not like a direct part of your message, but unintentionally, and I'm not too sure if this is this is a part of it, but unintentionally it seems to be like, hey, a huge part of purpose, of fulfillment, of happiness is actually derived from just being able to go and support other people. And and that's so present, even in the story that you just told about the guy in the clothing company and showing up and helping him and, and feeling that sense of fulfillment and rewarding from him. So I'm curious as to, uh, first off, why is it so important? And secondly, maybe like, could you share with us one of the stories of how you and, and you know, your, your guys have, have helped somebody else and the reward from that? Yeah, totally. So I think it's, hugely important for a number of reasons. One, because when you help uh, someone else in a meaningful way, I think it really fills you up and, and has an effect on you in a way that doing things for yourself just doesn't. I think it lasts longer. And I think that it, it just, it, it ultimately, for me, it, it's been something that where I, it just resonates with me longer. And, and I think it just sort of fills you up in a way that doing things for yourself, as I said, doesn't. I also think that and this is something that I, I think people don't always think about, but helping other people also helps you, you know, get things done. So when people see you out in the world doing something for someone else, if people see you out in the world helping other people, they want to help you. And that is sort of, you know, you can call that the secret, you can call that karma, but, but ultimately it just makes sense, right? Like if you're out there and being a good person, people want to help you. And I think that that, you know, if that's a great way to look at it, because essentially what you're doing is you're, you're encouraging this this circle of helping because it actually is good for everybody and i i also i also think that it's uh you know as i as i mentioned like if you can't think of of, of a way to, to help someone uh you know sort of specifically i do really believe that by doing what you love you help other people um because you don't know how that's going to inspire others uh, and and sort of following your true purpose and passion really has an effect on uh, a lot of people and so if we, you know, I, I think there's a, there's kind of a cool uh, story that comes to mind because I just, uh, I recently just saw that this, this girl, which is, which is really cool, but it, basically someone sent us a hashtag on, uh, from Twitter and they said, check this out. And we, we looked into it and the hashtag said hand for Tori and we looked into it. And what it was, it was, a, it was essentially a group of friends that had created this hashtag for their friend, Tori, who was born with one hand. And Tori's biggest dream was to have a bionic arm, right? Bionic arms are, you know, very expensive. They're hard to, the physical therapy is, is expensive. But ultimately what a bionic arm does is, is it, it's, it's a robotic arm that uses the pulses in your, in your, you know, your arm or what, what you have as an arm to move the hand like, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in any way, shape or form. So it's a really incredible technology and, 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 and instruments so that people that don't have limbs can essentially pick things up, you know, kind of like uh, do things that you would with, with two hands. So this, uh, this, these group of friends thought if we raise awareness, um, maybe somehow we can, we can get our friend Tori, uh, hand. And so we just simply reached out to this, um, medical company called hanger clinics who makes the best bionic arms in the world and said, Hey, check out this story. Was there any way that, uh, that, that you would be able to donate this bionic arm? And they said, yes. And we 
surprised Tori with it. And her friends were there. And we actually followed her as she went through the physical therapy of, of getting it fitted for the first time um, and then learning how to use it for the first time. And ultimately, having her dad be there who sort of, you know, it was a really special moment because he was always worried about um, his daughter. You know, not, is she going to fit in? Is she going to be okay? And ironically, she had this incredible group of friends that, you know, didn't didn't judge her at all. And, and, and she never felt like she had a disability. Um, and it was just like, so cool to see that as well, but also to see her with, you know, this, this arm that she could curl her hair for the first time. She could do up her shoes for the first time. She could thread a needle, you know, for the first time and just to kind of be a part of that moment with her that like, you know, it had meant so much to her was, was incredibly powerful. And, and so uh, I was, just last week in Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And she is now going to university at Bowling Green. And so I got to reunite with her after I hadn't seen her for a year or two and brought her up on stage. And we talked about the experience and also what she had learned. And what was so cool was that now she's in social work and she's working in a homeless shelter. And it, and she said that it was, you know, because this experience where she had sort of like had this kind of random act of kindness. And she thought that she wanted to pass it along and, pa and pay it forward, which was her going into social work and, and working with the homeless in her community. So yeah, it was just like a really impactful experience and, and to stay in touch with these people, you know, because you build this bond with them where you're sort of present in this, in this moment that is kind of altering for them that you, you just immediately have this connection <laughs> that you know, otherwise would take a long time. So that's something that's just been really, really cool. Very cool, man. That's, that's a pretty incredible story. And, you know, I think just for the listeners out there, I would definitely recommend checking out the book because there, there really are some, some incredible things in there that, 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 you know, you and the guys have done. And I think it gives a context for a lot of people of, of how to not just build like their own bucket list, but how to sort of start living in a way where you are living towards these things each and every single day. That's the best way that I could probably describe it. What is one of the things that has been a complete shock to you and surprise to you that you never thought that you never thought you guys would do, but actually ended up accomplishing along this journey? Because there's a few things on your list that I look at and I'm like, did you actually do that? Like, that's pretty nuts. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm kind of curious, A, what's the most outlandish one? And B, how did it actually come about? Because I want to give the listeners insight into what possibilities it creates by living in this way. Right. I think that before I answer your question specifically, I think that just from a, from a, if you step back and look at the power of an audacious goal, I think it cannot be, it is it, largely underrated and is so important because I think by having, you know, I'll put it this way. And, and Tim Ferriss says it well, that essentially 99% of the population does not believe they can do great things. So they shoot for mediocre goals, which means the level of competition is highest for mediocre goals. Therefore, if you shoot for unrealistic goals, there's less competition you have a higher chance of getting it done, right? So that's sort of a different way of looking at it, but it's, it's true. You know, you look at these people that are setting these, the most audacious goals, you know, people like Elon Musk, you know, people like Richard Branson and what that does to attract the best talent to them, you know, what that does to motivate people and themselves towards that goal 
what, what that does to, to bring people by their sides, just to cheer them on and, 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 and help make that happen in any way they can just to be a part of it. Um, and the secret is you don't need to know what the, you don't need to know how to do it, <laughs> right? You don't even know, like, you don't need to know the roadmap. You don't need to know the first three steps. All you need to know is the first step. And then you'll take, you'll figure out the second step after you figure out the first step. So I, I just feel like, you know, just from kind of thinking about these, these big goals, um, we used to be overwhelmed by them. We used to never think we could ever do them, but, but we've learned that like, there's, there's really a, a large power in even just setting out to and doing them and, or, and going about and trying to, to make them happen. And I think the, the biggest example of that for us, uh, was, uh, play basketball with president Obama. And, and that's something that we never in a million years thought could happen. And, you know, we ended up playing basketball with him at the white house and it was, uh, he surprised us on the, on the basketball courts at the white house. And, you know, it was sort of this moment that was so surreal that we could not believe that this was, this was happening because I remember, you know, when, when we, when we put it on the list was in 2008, when Johnny called me, president Obama had just been elected. Johnny had just read the audacity of hope, his, his biography. And he said, Benny, let's put play basketball with the president on the list. And I laughed because I was, I knew he was calling me from his friend's laundry room that he rented for $200 a month. And I live with my parents in Canada, <laughs> in, in Victoria, right? Like on a rock. So I was like, John, this is the most, like, it's the most impossible thing I could ever think of. And he's like, yeah, but man, like how amazing would it be? <laughs> so I was like, I can't argue with that. So we put it on the list. Uh, and it was, it was an incredible journey to get there, you know, in a, in a wild process, but, you know, ultimately uh, crossed off. Amazing, man. Amazing. That that was actually the one that stood out to me. I was like, that's, that's kind of crazy that you guys were able to not only do that and have that happen, but you know, just the circumstances that must have led to that in the very first place is, is pretty bananas. So, um, yeah, no. It, yeah. And I can, I'll, it's definitely a long story, but I can, I can give you a, a synopsis if we have time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, no one's helping us with these list items. Like even, you know, when we're doing the show with MTV, MTV is not helping us with anything. It's always the four of us. So we first started just, we drove to DC, right? We thought we just got to be there and talk with people. And we started talking pe with people on the streets, trying to see if they knew anyone in, uh, in the White House, which is like didn't work. But then we remembered that you could contact your local congressman, right? Uh, there's a lot of, you know, people in, in Capitol Hill or people in politics have their information listed publicly. So we just contacted all the local congressmen because we're Canadians. We didn't have one. So we just <laughs> contacted everybody and ultimately started getting sort of lower level meetings in Washington, sort of saying why we wanted to do this and our, what our goal was. And if they liked us, then they would pass on word above. And, you know, we were really lobbying in D.C. to play basketball against President Obama and got all the way up to the Secretary of Transportation who in the meeting called the White House and said, hey, I, I want to let you guys know I vouch for these guys. And we thought that that was it. We were, we were good to go. And we ended up getting an, an email from the White House saying, no, it's not going to happen. And we were, you know, sort of like, okay, this is an official no from the White House. This is not, uh, not good. But we're, what we'd learned is that the, the, there was these games that happened around Washington with President Obama, right? And the, the basketball games were set up by his personal aide, which is a guy named Reggie Love. Reggie Love played for Duke. So, you know, President Obama did not play basketball unless Reggie Love was on the court. And Reggie Love would send out a text to some senior level um, administration and the day of, say, this court, 7.30, you know, let me know if you're in. 
So we're like, we got to get a hold of Reggie Love. Like that's our inside man. Those, he's the gatekeeper. And we heard out that he worked out at the y, uh, YMCA in, in DC every morning at 5.30. So uh, he doesn't because I was there 5.30 every morning looking for him. <laughs> Didn't see him. You know, I uh, <laughs> ultimately we've got his email and we started sending him emails saying, hey, 7 p.m. tomorrow, us versus you and the president, right? Basically the same message that he sent out and we'd show up at the court that we had reserved and, you know, surprise, surprise, he wasn't there. And ultimately we left DC, but then we got a phone call out of the blue, a block number, and it was Reggie Love. And he's like, what's this I hear about you want to play basketball with the president and I? And we explained to him why. And he said, you know what? I like this. I think I can make this happen. Give me two weeks. I got to run it by the press team. And he called us back in two weeks. He's like, guys, talk with the press team. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and we're like, fuck. <laughs> right? Like, and so finally he said, you know what? I think he felt bad. He said, if you guys are ever in DC, let me know. I'll show you the White House basketball courts. And so we were back in DC a number of months later. And uh, he actually got back to us and he showed us, you know, the West Wing and showed us the basketball course and we're shooting around and um, we didn't think the president was in town. And 10 minutes later, President Obama strolls on the court and surprises us and said, hey, I heard about you guys were in town. I thought the least I could do is shoot a basket with you. And we were just dumb, you know, dumbfounded. And so we shot hoops with the president for about you know, 15, 20 minutes, there's a white house photographer there. We were trying to, we were trash talking each other, trying to, sh you know, sink shots that he wasn't sinking and stuff like that. It was, it was incredible. That's amazing, man. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I would like, I can just imagine the, the elation, but also the surprise as the president just like walks out onto the basketball court and you're like, oh my gosh, is this real life? So yeah, awesome, yeah. man. So awesome. So listen, we're, we're wrapping up on time here. I, I feel like I could just, talk to you about these experiences and and really, you know, for hours and hours on end and and really inspire people to to start taking action, you know, in their life and start living towards some of the things that they really ultimately want to be doing and, and the people that they want to be helping. But, you know, we, we're running out of time. So tell me a little bit about what is in the future for The Buried Life. I know that you guys are working on a bit of a documentary right now. You are rewriting the book. Um, what's what's hot off the presses? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the, one of our, our big goals right now is is make a movie. So that's sort of the reason we started The Buried Life was to make a documentary and, and we thought it was going to take two weeks and it's just taken, you know, a bit longer, <laughs> 10 years plus. So we're going to basically we've, we've cut it down to a manageable length and we're excited to to get that out you know in the next uh, year or so we're just uh, attached to director and it's um, it's very exciting so working on releasing the the buried life film uh, uh, yeah as you mentioned the re-releasing the buried life book with with some new material so that'll be cool and and and, and then for me personally I, I you know I've been doing uh, some speaking as as of late and and as I do more speaking, um, I sort of found this, this area, uh, and this, this kind of this problem that's going on that I feel very much drawn to because of my past experience. And that's, that's around mental health, mental wellness, and it's specifically men's mental health and, and wellness. And I think that, you know, right now we are in a crisis that is a lot of people don't know about, you know, we talk about the opioid crisis and that is definitely a crisis, but the mental health crisis is, is arguably, you know, much bigger. And that is, 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 is is happening right now all over the country and all over the world. And I think that what we need or what we can do, you know, outside of the medical community to combat this, I think is to destigmatize 
mental health in general by promoting and having productive, healthy conversations around uh, wellness. And I think we can we can do that in a number of ways by changing the language that we use when we talk about mental health. You know, I think that there's there's this sort of you know huge stigma around mental illness, just the word mental illness. When you know, what if we instead of talking about mental health, uh, you know, this is something that Adam from Movember talks about. What if we call it brain fitness? You know, I think that immediately changes the connotation to the fitness of your body, the fitness of your brain. You know, these are things that we need to, you know, take care of. And, and that's really what it is. And I think by talking about it, it, uh, it, it makes a huge difference because people need to understand that they're not alone and that, you know, everybody will go through some sort of mental health, you know, struggle at some point in their life, because that's what it means to be human, right? Human struggle. That's, you have ups, you have downs. And if you know that when you're in that, you know, that dark place that you don't, you know, that you're not in a corner because there are other people going through that and that it's okay to talk about it. And in fact, you know, you should talk to a therapist because, you know, that's something that will help you grow as a person and also give you tools to navigate difficult decisions. And and all of that is not only okay, but that's what everyone should do, you know? And I think that like, there's so many things that are so loaded uh, with stigma and shadowed by it that, uh, that the people feel, you know, really trapped. And that's when they do things like suicide and, and that, you know, feel like they have no way out and they, you know, really, really shouldn't. So, you know, I think that I'm trying to change that narrative of mental health and also the narrative of, of what it means to be a man and, and suck it up. Don't talk about your feelings, you know, when really the, the opposite is true. It's to be a man is to be courageous and uh, mm-hmm. talk about your vulnerabilities, as, as you know. So, so yeah, so those are the, those are the things that we're, that I'm focusing on and, and we're focusing on as a group. Yeah, it's really solid, man. I, and just to, to jump in there, like maybe we should, maybe we should do like a different conversation around the mental health side of things. Cause I, you know, that's a whole, whole podcast, a whole conversation in itself. And it really is sort of not an epidemic, I would say, well, it, it is in, in a lot of ways because I think a lot of guys aren't talking about it. And when you look at the stats out there, it is, you know, it's, it's pretty it's staggering. it's staggering. And, you know, I think as somebody who runs an organization for men, I have men reaching out to me all the time that are, you know, in either in full crisis or on the verge of being in crisis. And, you know, I work a lot one-on-one in small groups with guys around improving their mindset and improving their, their cognitive performance. And it's not just from a space of like, you know, how do you, how do you hack your brain and stuff like that? But like, how do you actually just, how do you get in a good space? And then how do you move forward from there? Because I think a lot of, you know, a lot of guys are, are looking for a hack and, and looking at like growth hacking and mind hacking and stuff like that as a, as a means to solving a very, a, a little bit of a deeper problem. Yes. And we're, you know, it's, it's like, what's the saying? It says, it's like putting a, a bandaid on a gunshot wound. And, right. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, it's, it's, that's a little bit of a, of a harsh analogy, but it really is the case, you know, where we have guys that are struggling and women too. This isn't to say that they're not, but, you know, we're talking about men specifically. And, you know, if it is about mental performance, then it seems to be a little bit of a different conversation. And I think a lot of that is because, as men, a lot of, you know, our, our highest value really comes from our ability to perform. You know, we're seen in a lot of ways as 
like success, success objects. And so how we perform and how we internally, and this is the really important part, how we internally feel like we're performing often, often is an indicator of our mental health. And so if we are producing results out in the world, in our job, in our relationships, in our finances, but internally we feel like crap and we feel like a fraud and, you know, we're, we're struggling with imposter syndrome and we don't feel like we deserve any of those things, then our mental performance is actually really struggling, right? Really suffering. So yeah, man, I, I love that conversation. Just on just on that note, and then and then we actually will wrap it up because I think this is an important one to just touch on. Where do where do you see a lot of guys really struggling in the conversation? Because I think you know it's becoming more present in our mainstream culture, and it's becoming more acceptable for men to talk about it. But what do you still see as being one of the pieces? that is still holding men back from having the important conversations, whether it's with a therapist or, or with a buddy. I think, and you know, I say this because it's, this is how I felt before I really started talking about my struggle with depression openly was just how other people would view me, you know, and how my, you know, friend, but more importantly for, for me, peers, colleagues, you know, I, I think that people, and, you know, and I, and I get this, feel that it is a, a weakness, right? It's really, it's a sign of weakness. And if you're leading a company, you know, how can you, you know, talk about that type of weakness? You will be seen as, 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 in, as unable to lead or to do your job, you know, or as weak. And the irony is that I learned and, and and I know you know this as well is that those things that you think are your weakness are actually your strengths. And, you know, I, I'm not just saying this just because that's what people, you know, throw around that this is what I've learned. You know, what, what I've learned is like the whole buried life, you know, this, this whole life changing experience came out of, of that depression, you know, this whole, you know, new chapter where I'm speaking about, mental health and, and my experience, the only way I can talk about it effectively is because I've been through it. And I wouldn't be able to do this work if I hadn't been through it. And that builds, you know, I, I, that allows me to empathize with people and relate to them. And that is humanizing. And that also, like, I think happens when anybody opens up about something that they're struggling. Because, like, you know, I, I like the question when you, you know, if, you, if you're with a group of people just saying, what have you survived? Because everybody has gone through something, you know, and, and, and there, it's different variances. And it's like, you know, some people take things different ways and are able to deal with things in different ways. But everybody has that struggle. And I think that ultimately, that's how you learn about yourself. That's how you grow. And, and, and you will find, you know, an enormous amount of strength from it. And you will find that people actually respect you more when you, when you do that. And you're honest and you're open about those, those cracks that you see to be as cracks, which are really, you know, ultimately letting the light in. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. I think even when we, even when we look at sort of like the, the background of, of men and masculinity, like it, it has been this sort of, you know, piece that we have tried to keep or kept hidden, you know, in the past where it was like, you're more manly somehow, if you don't show any vulnerabilities, if you are completely impervious to, yeah. to life itself, somehow you are more masculine. And, yes, and yes. with, you know, I, I don't think we need to get into like the origins of that because that could be, that could take up a long, you know, uh, <laughs> that could take up a while. Um, I do think that 
that is really starting to shift that being being a man being masculine is is less about being impervious and more about owning the imperfections that are actually there and that when you can do that there is this there is this incredible amount of strength when you can you know, unabashedly just sort of say, this is how I've struggled in the past. This is, as you've said, what I've survived. There is this respect that is garnered alongside of that. And so, you know, I think the the call, it sounds like what you're saying, and maybe you can reword this for me, but it sounds like the call is to is to really speak about the things that you have survived. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, more than anything, just because what's shareable is bearable. Right. And like, just for you, you have to talk about it. And if you don't feel comfortable talking about it in front of your colleagues or your friends, you know, that's okay. But you need to talk about it to somebody. And, and hopefully, you know, that's someone that has the, the, the tools in their toolkit to help you, you know, learn and, and, and understand why you're feeling like that. But like, I, you know, I just heard that the other day, what's shareable is bearable. And it's, it's completely true. You, you will feel it literally, you'll feel lighter. You'll feel it lift off your shoulders and you will begin to, gain power over this thing that has power over you as soon as you start to talk about it. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much, Ben, for for joining me on the podcast today. This, this was incredible. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Such a good chat, uh, chat and conversation. Awesome, man. So for everybody else out there uh, listening, definitely don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast with somebody that you know should listen to it, especially this last part. It's such a good conversation. I think we'll probably have Ben back on to, to really dive deep into that mental health conversation, mental performance conversation. And for everybody else out there listening, thank you so much for joining me. This is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Yeah.